You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, I'm going to introduce you to Justin Peters. Last time Justin was here was March of 2010 for a series of seminars that he does on alerting Christians to the dangers of the word faith movement and what is called the New Apostolic Reformation, also known as NAR, one of the most misnamed groups in all of Christianity because it's not new, it's not apostolic, and it's not a reformation. It is something entirely, it's old, it's non-apostolic, and it's anti-reformation. So Justin does seminars on that. He was here with us two years ago. And uh, a lot has gone on with Justin and his ministry, and I'm going to let him kind of give you an update on that real quick. If you would like to donate to Justin's ministry to support him and what he does, Justin Peters Ministries, then we have a little offering box out at the back back there, and feel free to uh, do what you want to help Justin out. Uh, Justin, two years have gone by. What has happened, and where have you been? Well, um, I've, uh, I've gotten married. I've gotten married. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I, I could not have um, dreamed how God would uh, use Kathy, uh, my wife, to bless me uh, the ways that he has. I mean, it's, uh, it's just when I look back at, at my single days, you know, uh, before Kathy, it just seems like a different world to me now, different lifetime ago, different me ago. And um, God has really, really blessed her, uh, blessed me through her. Uh, she's a wonderful, godly woman. Um, Loves the Lord and very doctrinally sound. I'd put her up against just about any seminary professor in her doctrine. Uh, she's self-taught, but uh, um, wonderful, wonderful lady. And it, it truly does seem like a, a, just a different lifetime ago before, you know, before we got married. And, and uh, so marriage is a good thing. And uh, he who finds a, a wife finds a good thing. And that uh, God has definitely blessed me with a very, very good wife. And um, so. Um, uh, God's been tremendously good. We've been traveling quite a bit uh, in the last year and a half or so. We've been north, south, east, west. Been everywhere from Texas to Wisconsin, South Carolina to Oregon. So we've kind of traversed the country and uh, been overseas. Been to England a couple of times. Been to South Africa just a couple months ago. Went to South Africa with one of my best friends, a guy named J.D. Harrison, who's a pastor in Alabama. Had a, uh, by God's grace, a very fruitful trip there. And, um, was in Ecuador last summer. And, um, that was a very fruitful trip as well. It, some pastors in Ecuador asked me to come down and teach on the Word of Faith movement because of the prosperity gospel, even in places like Ecuador, is just ravaging churches. And, um, so, and he continues to, to open up doors and, uh, continue to preach and teach. My seminars changed. A great deal since I've seen you last, and um, so, but it's it's good to be here and good to be with you, Jim. You've got something big coming up in the next few weeks. Tell everybody about that. Tell me about a radio. Oh, radio. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I thought he was talking about a, my trip to I'm going to Alaska next week. No, that's not big. No, a uh, radio. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've, been to, you've been to Africa and South America. Alaska's. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm actually starting a radio program. Uh, I don't know if any of you have you, any of you heard of Brandon House Worldview Weekend. See a few hands. Um, Google WorldviewWeekend.com. Great, great resource. Brandon's a great guy, a good friend of mine. But uh, he's been on me about doing a radio program. So here in about two or three weeks, I'm going to start a internet radio program. And you can listen to it on worldviewweekend.com. I'll also, also post it on my website, justinpeters.org. Starting off, it'll be 30 minutes a week, so no big deal. And uh, I've never done radio before. I'm very nervous about it. I've been interviewed, but I've never hosted my own show, so I'm very nervous about it. But, um, but uh, Lord willing, uh, that will get off the ground here in a couple, three weeks, and we'll see. Maybe it'll expand to a, an hour a week um, sometime later. But for right now, 30 minutes a week. It'll be doctrinally oriented. We'll talk about doctrine and theology and some of those issues. 
Uh, last time you were here, you shared with us that, this was during our introduction time, you shared with us that your three favorite presidents were George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Ronald Reagan. Now, I was thinking, I told you this earlier this week, I came up with a uh, a reason or something that's good, a good thing that came out of the South losing the Civil War. Remember what it was? The Ronald Reagan was born in Illinois, so if the yeah. South had won the Civil War, Reagan would have never been your president. Well, <laughs> a couple of corrections. Couple but, of corrections. but you would have had Carter and Clinton, both. Easy now. All right. <laughs> Never thought we would have a president make Jimmy Carter look good, but we do now. Uh, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln is not one of my three favorites. He's one of my three least favorites. President. But he, he is moving up, in your opinion. You've warmed up a little bit to him. I would vote for Lincoln over Obama, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you used to say that Lincoln was the second worst president we've ever yeah, had. Yeah, I used to say he was the second worst, and now he's probably the third worst now. <laughs> but uh, Lincoln, yeah, he ran roughshod over the Constitution and started the war. But anyway. <laughs> uh, i got to give you a little bit of background. Uh, uh, it was about 18 months ago, or was it last? It was in September or May of last summer, uh, I met Justin at a resort over in Montana next to West Yellowstone to do a couple of days of riding four-wheelers over there. He brought his dad up with him. So I showed up there, and we were sitting down for the very first evening for dinner. And Justin was sitting across the table with me, and his dad was next to him. We, I was introducing him to our hosts, the people who own this resort. And they actually come to Kootenai when they're up here on vacation a couple times a year. And I was introducing them, Justin to them, and I said, Justin really is an expert in the Civil War. Or what do you call it? War of Northern Aggression. An expert in the Civil War. I said, Justin's an expert in the Civil War. Uh, he kind of dabbles in the word faith movement stuff a little bit, educating people about that. And his dad stopped eating and looked up at me. And then he turned to Justin and he said, you need to educate your friend here about the War of Northern Aggression. <laughs> so the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Yeah, that's right. I have a little gift that I want to give to Justin. This is uh, something I thought of doing. This is designed by Thomas Leo. This is a, a bumper sticker, and it says, a War of Northern Aggression, North versus South. North one, South zero, halftime. <laughs> I got one here for you and one for your dad. Okay, cool. Thanks, man. Keep them down here. I like Very that. Very good. Th like Justin, that. share the word with us. Thank That's you. That's right. We, South didn't lose the war. We just ran out of men. It is a it is a joy to be with y'all. It truly is. It's a joy to be with you, and uh, um, very thankful for your pastor. Very very thankful for Jim. And uh, before we get to the to the text this morning, just briefly want to say that there are challenges with what Kathy and I do in evangelism, to be sure. But I tell you, uh, I don't face the kind of challenges that a pastor does. And um, in a church like this, probably most of you realize this, but uh, I want to say it anyway. Uh, being being a good pastor is the hardest job in the world. If all Jim had to do was prepare messages, if that's all he had to do, that's a full-time job and then some in and of itself. Uh, being a pastor, you know, any schmuck could get up and read a sermon off of sermons.com or something, but to labor in the Word, uh, rightly divide the Word of truth, that is a full-time job in and of itself. And there are very, very few, very few pastors who really do that. Jim is one of them. And uh, you're very, very blessed. So I encourage you, pray for your pastor, pray for his family, uh, pray for Deidre. Very hard being a pastor's wife. I'm sure I've never been a pastor's wife, probably. Never will, but uh, very hard because she shares all the burdens that he does. So uh, y'all pray for your pastor and his family. Lift them up and be very, very thankful. Be very thankful for what you have here. Uh, God has blessed this church tremendously. Uh, so let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll get to the text. Father, we do love you and we praise you, for you are worthy to be praised. Uh, you and you alone are worthy of our worship and our adoration. Lord, we love you only because you have loved us first. We thank you for the grace and mercy that you have extended towards us and your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your sufficient word 
that you have given to us, Lord, that we are fully equipped to carry out your will in our lives. We pray that you would go with us now as we look at your word, uh, and we pray that you would be honored and glorified in it. We pray that uh, you would lead us into truth, sanctify us in the truth of your word, all for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. This is a message I have entitled Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Jim read the text for us this morning, and uh, this is not a warm, fuzzy passage of Scripture. This is not something that you will see in Chicken Soup for the Soul, and you will never hear the likes of uh, Joel Osteen preach off of this text because it is a very sobering text on some level. It is a disturbing text, but uh, also it is a very encouraging text to us. Um, and that's kind of what I want us to focus on is um, the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, Luke, writing Luke's Gospel, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. You could almost think of Acts as kind of Luke Volume 2, a continuation of Luke's Gospel, Luke writing in the early 60s A.D. And Luke was a man of great detail. He was a man of great detail. He was a physician by trade. Uh, Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. And so as a physician, Luke was a man of great detail. He took a lot of care, a lot of concern in how he wrote, how he recorded the events in Jesus' life and ministry. And so when Luke writes to us, uh, we need to key in on these details. He's being very meticulous. He's being very careful. Now, for a little bit of context here to our text, if you look, you don't have to flip there, but if you look at the beginning of chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. It says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained. And then Jesus begins to address the Pharisees in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 16, in the opening of chapter 16, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples. He is now speaking and addressing his disciples. So he was addressing the Pharisees. Now he turns his attention to the disciples. He addresses them. But interestingly, in verse 14, look who is still sticking around. Verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, also heard all of these things. They derided him. So the Pharisees never really left the scene. They were still there. They were eavesdropping, if you will. And so even Jesus, even though Jesus turned his attention to the disciples, the Pharisees were still there. They were eavesdropping, listening in on what Jesus had to say. And notice that Luke describes the Pharisees as lovers of what? Lovers of money. They were lovers of money. And so this is important background information as we get to our text, beginning here in verse 19. Now, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. The picture here is one of extreme opulence, one of great wealth. This rich man was very, very wealthy. Uh, he had everything that the world could offer. It says that he was clothed in purple and fine linen. Fine linen, uh, intricately woven garments, uh, white garments. And this purple was a uh, outer garment colored in purple. And purple was a very, very difficult color to produce in first century. Purple was actually derived from the oil of snails. And so very hard color to produce. So the sense is, is that if you had an entire garment colored purple, you had arrived. You had arrived. You had everything that the world could offer. Extraordinarily wealthy. Extraordinarily wealthy. A man of great, great riches, great, great wealth. Everything that the world could offer. And it says that he, depending on your translation, he was gaily living. He fared sumptuously every day. Gaily living, when you, when you look at this in the Greek, when you tease it out a little bit in the Greek, the sense is almost that even though this man had everything that the world could offer, uh, 
all of the wealth, the, the, the rich food, the fine clothes, clothed in purple, even though he had everything that the world could offer, it was almost an effort on his part to daily put on this facade that he was happy, that he had real contentment, that he had joy. The sense is, is that this is not something that came naturally for him. It was almost like he, it was an effort on his part to wake up every morning and put on this air of being content and being, and having joy because he was so wealthy. But deep down, he really did not have what he wanted the world to think that he had. He wanted the world to think that he was content, to think that he was happy, to think that he had joy, but deep down, he really did not. The sense is it was an effort on his part, to put on this facade on a day-to-day basis. And we see this all around us. Uh, there are many, many people who are very wealthy, but when you look at their lives, they're wrecks. Uh, look at Hollywood. I mean, it's an easy example. Uh, look at Hollywood and these actors and actresses and singers, multi-multi-millionaires, and got more money than they could ever hope to spend even if they wanted to, and yet you look at their personal lives and their disasters. Michael Jackson, I mean, arguably the most famous entertainer of all times, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, and yet you look at his personal life and it was a disaster. He was a train wreck. And dear friends, no matter how many things we acquire, no matter how, many, how much money or, or material goods we have, They cannot provide us true, lasting joy. Superficial happiness, maybe. On a fleeting, uh, a fleeting stance, maybe. But true, lasting, underlying, deep, abiding, constant joy, never. Money and goods cannot do that. By design, they cannot do that. A lot of people are trying to fill this and, and salve their guilty conscience because everyone knows that he or she is a sinner. We all know that. God's given us a conscience. When we sin, we do so with knowledge that we are sinning. And so many people try to salve their guilty conscience, consciences with the things of the world. And they try to put on this air that they are happy and content because of what they have or they know. But deep down, these things will not do that. Only a relationship with Christ can provide that deep sense of true contentment and true joy. Anything else is a facade. It's a thin veneer of superficiality. Verse 20. But there was a certain beggar, a certain poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Now, it's interesting. There is a debate. Some uh, Bible scholars, there's a friendly debate going on as to whether or not this story that gives, that Jesus gives us is a real account of a real event in history or if it is a parable. Now, if it is a parable, it is unlike any of Jesus' other parables because in this story, Jesus actually gives us specific names. He names Lazarus and he names Abraham. In none of other, of Jesus' other parables does he give us specific names. So this would be very unusual if this is indeed a parable. And I think the fact that he gives us specific names, in my best understanding, tilts the scales in the favor of that this is not a parable. This is a real event. Jesus is describing for us a real event, something that actually happened, a real event in history. And even as we sit here this morning, uh, the rich man is languishing in the lake of fire and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, is in heaven. I believe that this is a real event in history. But notice how Jesus describes this. He says, there was a certain beggar, a certain poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs came and licked his sore. This, this is a very graphic picture. This is a very graphic picture. It's very disturbing. Lazarus was poor. He had nothing. He was full of sores, open, oozing sores, undoubtedly painful to the touch. 
And notice that it says that he was laid at his gate. Lazarus did not walk to the rich man's gate. He was laid at his gate. Lazarus was a cripple. Lazarus could not even move about on his own. He had absolutely nothing. He was covered with open sores. He was crippled. He could not move about on his own. He was laid at the rich man's gate. He was starving, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. He was starving. And then, to top it all off, Luke records for us that even the dogs came and they licked his sores. And when we read dogs here in the New Testament, dear friends, don't think of happy little cocker spaniels. These were wild dogs. They were not there to comfort Lazarus. They were tormenting him. This is a very graphic, very disturbing picture. You could not have two more polar opposite extremes. The rich man with everything that the world could offer, fine linens, purple clothing, rich food, undoubtedly a nice palatial home, Lazarus, poor, destitute, starving, crippled, covered with open sores. It could not be a more stark and graphic contrast. And notice the name of Lazarus. His name is Lazarus. Lazarus means, literally, Lazarus means God helps. God helps. Um, most Americans, I've seen a, a study done on this, the majority of Americans think the phrase that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. Most people think it is. God helps those who help themselves. Bill O'Reilly thinks it is. Heard him one night. His favorite Bible verse is, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> Friends, not only is God helps those who help themselves, not only is it not in the Bible, it's not even a biblical concept. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And spiritually speaking, we cannot help ourselves. Just as helpless as Lazarus was physically, we are just as helpless, just as broken, just as destitute spiritually before a holy God. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. There are no amount of good works, uh, no amount of, of good intentions, no amount of sincerity that will earn God's Favor. We are completely broken and completely helpless as wretched sinners before a pure and holy God. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And we cannot help ourselves spiritually. We cannot do enough good things. Our works are as filthy rags before God. Most people today think, well, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and God will accept me, nothing could be further from the truth. We think we are going to come before the creator of the universe with our piddling little good works. Oh, Lord, I, I work for Habitat for Humanity. I help little old ladies across the street. I taught Sunday school. I was a deacon. I was a pastor. I was all these things. We think we're going to impress God with our piddling little good works. He is the one who spoke the universe into existence. He knows all of the stars by name. Good luck with impressing Him. We cannot help ourselves, dear friends. Salvation is a gift given by God that must be received. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. There is nothing that we can do to help ourselves. Lazarus could not help himself. Verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Death is the great equalizer. Death is the great equalizer. Death comes to us all. It does not matter who you are or who you know does not matter how much you have or how little you have. It doesn't matter on what side of the tracks you were raised on. Death will come to us all. There was a study done recently. I'm not sure if you heard it. Make big news. 
studies shows that 10 out of 10 people die. (laughs) Death will come to us all. 10 out of 10 people die. Dear friends, death is coming. It is an appointment. It is appointed man wants to die and then comes the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 None of us are getting out of this thing alive. And we do not know when that appointment will come. But it is an appointment we will all meet. Now, undoubtedly, the rich man died. When he died, undoubtedly, he had a very nice funeral. Very ornate. Uh, undoubtedly, his body was well cared for, well wrapped and anointed with spices and perfumes. Probably had a nice ceremony, maybe even some people saying some nice flowery words. Who knows? Undoubtedly, had a very nice funeral, and his body was laid in a very nice tomb cut out from the stone because only rich people could afford such tombs, but undoubtedly his body was well cared for, laid very nicely down in a tomb, sealed, very nice ornate tomb, nice ornate funeral, very nice funeral for the rich man, undoubtedly. Lazarus had no such funeral. Undoubtedly what happened to Lazarus was the same thing that happened to all of the sick and the poor and the diseased of this day and age. Undoubtedly, Lazarus' body was picked up, carried outside of the city gates, and dumped into a pile to be consumed by the elements, by wild animals, maybe burned. No nice funeral for Lazarus. No uh, care was taken over his diseased body. No flowery speeches for Lazarus. But look at his pallbearers. Look at his pallbearers. It says he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. You know, dear friends, I don't lose a whole lot of sleep wondering about what kind of funeral I'm going to have on this earth. But I want these pallbearers. I want these pallbearers. I want to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Death will come to us all. Do you know where you will go when that appointment comes for you? Maybe you'll have a nice funeral, but who will your pallbearers be? We want to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And only those who are in Christ will have these pallbearers. Verse 23, And being in torment in Hades, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. The great reversal. The Lazarus is now in Abraham's bosom in heaven enjoying the splendors and the worship of heaven, and the rich man wakes up in the place of torment, the lake of fire. Undoubtedly, this would have scandalized the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are listening to this, it would have absolutely been scandalous to them because in their understanding, if a person was wealthy, then undoubtedly God was smiling on that person. Undoubtedly, God was smiling on the rich man. And this would have scandalized the Pharisees. And this poor, wretched, diseased beggar, Lazarus, sitting beside Abraham in Abraham's bosom, are you kidding me? This would have been scandalous to the Pharisees. But you know, many people today have this very same view. That if someone is suffering, if someone is poor, if someone is sick, then then God is frowning on that person. That person has done something to incur God's judgment. If somebody's wealthy, they have everything that they want. God's smiling on them. God is blessing them. And you see this day in and day out on Christian television. And more often times than not, nothing could be further from the truth. Dear friends, it would be a mistake, okay? It would be a mistake to assume that the rich man went to the place of torment because he was rich and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom because he was poor. That is not the point of the story. Each man went where he was spiritually prepared to go. There will be rich people here on this earth in heaven, and there will be poor people here on this earth in hell. 
Each man went where he was spiritually prepared to go. But the great reversal. Lazarus had nothing. Now he has everything. The rich man had everything. Now he has nothing. In verse 24, this is a this is a chilling and sobering verse of Scripture. He cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He's still being self-centered. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I'm in agony in this flame. Dear friends, when I stop and think about hell, when I think about the reality of hell, my circuit breakers trip. I, I can't comprehend it. I cannot comprehend it. My circuit breakers just trip. When you think about the horrors of hell, and we all know how painful it is just to hold our fingers over a, over a lit match or over a candle just for a second. It's excruciating. You can't do it. But in hell, people are in a lake of fire, a literal lake of fire, where the worm does not die. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and there will be no relief for all of eternity, for all of eternity, and it will never, ever end. And when I think about this, I cannot even comprehend it. Dear friends, if we really believe what we say we believe about hell, why are we not out there in the highways and the hedges telling people how to avoid this place? If we really believe what we say we believe about the wrath of God being poured out for all of eternity, why are we not sharing with people the gospel? Why are we not giving them the one thing that can save them from this place? Or maybe it's that we don't believe really, what we say we believe in this book. If we did, I would have to think that more of us would be out there telling people and warning people about God's coming judgment. Let's not soft-pedal hell. Okay, I cannot tell you how many preachers I have heard who have a rather orthodox view of Christianity and who would affirm the inerrancy of Scripture but I can't tell you how many preachers I have heard who kind of soft-pedal hell. And they say, well, if a person dies in their sins, dies without Christ, they will go to hell. And they're, they're firm on that. They will say they will go to hell and they will be separated from God for all of eternity. That's their description of hell. Separated from God for all of eternity. If you will, flip over in the back of your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. You know, when I hear this, that hell is eternal separation from God, you know, put yourself in the shoes of a lost person. Put yourself in the shoes of someone who does not know God and really has no interest in knowing God. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? Well, you tell me when if I die without Jesus and I'll be separated from God for all of eternity? Okay. I, God's not a big part of my life anyway. What's so bad about that? But you know what? This is not how the Bible describes hell. Beginning of verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, Revelation 14, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on, or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Dear friends, do you know what the most horrific thing about hell is? God. Because hell is not being separated from God. Hell is being in the presence of God for all of eternity in his mode of judgment. The wrath of God will be poured out for all of eternity on unrepentant sinners. The most horrific thing about hell is that those in hell will be in the presence of the Lamb 
in his mode of judgment for all of eternity. Let's not soft pedal hell. And some say, well, that just seems so unfair. How could God punish so horrifically for all of eternity for sins that we commit here on this earth? They're temporal sins. How could He punish for eternity? He can rightly and justice, justly punish for eternity because we have sinned against the eternal God. And those people in hell, do you know people in hell, they hate God more in hell than they ever did on earth. They have a hatred for God. And so God's wrath is continuously being poured out. But they are continuously sinning. They continuously hate God. And so they are sinning for all of eternity because of their hatred for God. And so the judgment of God, God's wrath, God's judgment, it never even really catches up to the sin. Does that make sense? People are continuously sinning, so God's wrath is continuously being poured out. Let's not soft-pedal hell, dear friends. It is a very real place, and if we believe what we say we believe about the Bible, then let's go out to people, and let's take the gospel to people, and show them how to escape the wrath of God. In verse 24, there's more to this. Verse 24 is a very damning passage of scripture for the rich man notice it says then he cried and said father Abraham he called out Abraham by name he recognized him what does this tell us the rich man was a religious man he knew father Abraham he recognized him and he called him by name undoubtedly the rich man had been raised and taught some scripture He may have even gone to synagogue. He had some knowledge. He had some Bible knowledge. Father Abraham. Almost a sense of familiarity. Father Abraham. This man was not an atheist. He was a religious man. He had some head knowledge. He had some head knowledge of the Bible. Dear friends, Salvation is not just intellectual assent to some Bible facts. There are a lot of people who have some head knowledge of the Bible, but they are not converted. There will be a lot of theologians in hell. I was a false convert myself. I had a lot of head knowledge. But that head knowledge had not truly penetrated my heart. Friends, please don't rest on the fact that you know some scripture as the assurance of your salvation. Intellectual knowledge, intellectual assent is important. You cannot be saved unless you intellectually believe the facts of the, of the resurrection, of the deity of Christ, of the atonement on the cross and the bodily resurrection from the, from the dead. If you do not intellectually believe these things, You cannot be saved. Intellectual assent is important. It is necessary. But it is not only intellectual assent. The demons also believe and they tremble. This man had intellectual assent. He had head knowledge. But that head knowledge had not penetrated his heart. Because notice who else he knows by name. Send Lazarus. Send Lazarus. It's not that the rich man didn't know Lazarus was there. Oh, he knew it. He knew he was there. Not only did he know he was there, he even knew his name. Sin Lazarus. He had head knowledge of Scripture. He had some religiosity. But that knowledge had not penetrated his heart. And even here in hell, as a good example of how people remain unrepentant in hell... He has this condescending attitude towards Lazarus. Send Lazarus like he is his errand boy. Send Lazarus. He had had knowledge, but that knowledge had not penetrated his heart. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, 
Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in torment. The great reversal. The rich man languishing in the place of fire, enduring the wrath of God for all of eternity. Lazarus in heaven, Abraham's bosom. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Dear friends, once we die, and we all will, once we meet that appointed day of death, we will all go to one of two places, and we will be there for all of eternity. There are no second chances. Don't pass go, don't collect $200. There are no second chances. We will all go to one of two places and we will be there for all of eternity. There is no such thing as purgatory. That is a made-up doctrine of fabrication of the Catholic Church. And it is an offense to the gospel. There is no purgatory. There are no second chances. We will go to one of two places and our eternities will then be fixed. No second chances. Verse 27. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father Abraham, I beg you that you should send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Finally, the rich man is thinking about somebody besides himself. Finally. He says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Finally, he's thinking about somebody beside himself. Warn my five brothers not to come to this place. But it was far too little and far, far too late. Watch Abraham's response. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. That's a rather unusual response. Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets had been dead for centuries. How could they possibly hear Moses and the prophets? This is how. This is how they hear Moses and the prophets. The word of God, let them hear Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets speak today. They are speaking today through the word of God. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone were to go to them from the dead, then they will believe. Then they will repent. If somebody were to rise from the dead, go to them from the dead, then my five brothers will believe. If they can see a miracle, if they can see a sign, if they can see a wonder, they will believe. That will convince them. And Abraham responded, if they will not hear Moses, if they will not hear the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even if someone were to rise from the dead. Dear friends, there is an inherent power in this book that is found nowhere else. Not in miracles, not in signs and wonders, not in seeker-sensitive approaches to doing church, not in making church fun and entertaining. There's an inherent power in this book that is found nowhere else. Paul says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is the power of God unto salvation? The gospel is. This is the power of God unto salvation. And so much of Christianity today is colored by people who think that the power of God is in miracles and signs and wonders in angel feathers falling out of the sky and people getting manna in their Bibles and gold dust on their hands and gold dust in their hair and God's giving people turning their teeth fillings into gold. and Oh, that's the power of God. Those are cheap parlor tricks or demonic illusions. You know what the power of God is? The gospel. That is the power of God unto salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel. If you really want to see the power of God unleashed, take the gospel to people. 
And we have preachers today who have such little confidence in the Word of God, they might give lip service to saying, yes, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I believe that it is powerful. But when you look at how they do church and how they preach, you can tell that they don't really believe it because their churches are places of entertainment, not houses of worship. You can tell how a man really believes about the Word of God by how he preaches, how he does church. You don't have to entertain people. You don't have to make church fun and meet their quote-unquote felt needs, whatever those are. Because the power of God is the gospel. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and is able to judge, to discern the intentions of the heart. Dear friends, we are holding in our hands, we are holding in our laps the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. A few years ago, this movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out, which was heretical in and of itself. Boy, there was so much buzz about it. Known Christian leaders, prominent evangelical evangelical leaders are so excited about the passion of the Christ. People are going to get saved watching this movie. People are going to get healed. Their lives will be changed by the passion of the Christ. They said, this is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. Dear friends, I would submit to you that this book is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. Take the gospel to people. The gospel and only the gospel is what is able to change people. The gospel and only the gospel is what is able to convict men of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, and of the truth of Jesus' resurrection and His free offer of salvation. John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus, this is His high priestly prayer that He's praying for His disciples shortly before His crucifixion. You can turn there if you want, but I just want to read one verse of Scripture to you. John 17, verse 20. Jesus says something very, very interesting and very encouraging to us. John 17, verse 20. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone meaning His disciples. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their signs and wonders, through their miracles, through their Word. I do not pray on behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe, not may believe in Me, not those who might believe in Me, for those who will believe in me through their word, through their testimony of the gospel. You know, shortly before Jesus was crucified and, and at his crucifixion, Jesus, just looking at this at, at face value, would not have had seemingly a lot of reason to be very confident about his disciples because when he was hanging on the cross, there was only one of them who was there, and that was John. All the rest of them, they got out of Dodge. They scattered like quail. They were gone. Some friends. Not a lot of reason to be very confident in His disciples. And you know what? Jesus' confidence was not so much in His disciples. His confidence was in His Word, was in His Gospel, was in His saving power. And He knew that there will be millions of people who will believe in Him through their Word, through their preaching of the Word of God. He assumed the success of their mission. That's just about enough to make me preach myself happy. He assumed the success of their mission. He didn't wonder about it. He didn't think, well, I hope there will be people who will believe them after I'm gone. Oh, He knew there would be. He knew there would be because he had a lot of reason to have confidence in, in these disciples. No, because he had every confidence in himself and in his gospel. I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. Dear friends, that's a great encouragement to us. And you know what? As Christians, we can go out and we can have great confidence, not in ourselves, 
not in our abilities of persuasion, we can have great confidence in the gospel, knowing that when we take the gospel to people, we are taking to them the power of God unto salvation. It is not up to us to save anybody. Okay? It is not up to us to, to reason with them in such a persuasive manner that we kind of convince them to become a Christian. No, we give them the gospel. We give them the gospel. That's all we have to do. And it is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. The power of God is the gospel. So let's go out with confidence. Not in ourselves, but confidence in our great God and confidence in the message which He has entrusted to us. Sola Scriptura. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, as recorded in Scripture alone. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do stand in awe of You, and we stand in awe of Your Word. Lord, we stand in awe that You have somehow uh, chosen to see fit to call us unto Yourself. And Lord, for all of us who are saved, who belong to You, You have saved us by Your Gospel because it is Your power for salvation. And Lord, may we know that we are fully equipped to go out into the highways, into the hedges, go out into the world. And Lord, may we flesh out our beliefs, what we say we believe. Let us be mindful of the horrors of hell. Let us be mindful of the riches of your mercy and your deep, unsearchable love for us. Thank you for equipping us. Father, we love you and we praise you again because you've loved us first. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.